Father, we thank you for your word this morning that we can open your very words that we might, through the power of your spirit, working through your word, that we might know you, that we might be changed by you. We might leave today both encouraged by your word and convicted, perhaps, of things in our lives that need mending, of sin in our lives. So we pray this morning as we open your word that you would do your work in our hearts through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's a story of a couple of swindlers, a couple of swindlers who came before the emperor and decided to tell him that they were weavers. Perhaps you're catching on to the story. Weavers, and they were going to weave him the finest clothing that he's ever had. And they knew that the emperor loved clothing and loved to look noble before his people. And so the king obliged and gave them money and gave them a place in the palace to go and make this new clothing. And the weavers sell to the emperor was this. Listen, these, this clothing is going to be so amazing that only the wisest, only the most sophisticated, only the wisest and most sophisticated people can even see your clothing. No one else, if they are unwise or if they were lowly, can even see the clothes that you wear. And he bought in. A couple weeks go by and there is no movement on the clothing. He hasn't seen anything from these weavers, and he sends an official, and the official goes to the weavers, and he sees nothing. And he comes back to the emperor, but he remembers only the wise can see these clothes. And so he says to the emperor, the clothes are amazing. They're beautiful. They're still working on them, but they'll be ready soon. And so he sends another official, and the exact same thing happens. Neither official wanted to say because they would be thought to be a fool that they saw nothing. And finally, the king got agitated and said, I'm going to go see it for myself. And the emperor goes and the weavers bring out the clothes and he sees nothing, but he goes back to the people and says, the clothes are magnificent not to be wanting to see, be seen as a fool. And then he goes back to the weavers in his kingdom, and he says, we're going to have a parade. We're going to have this big celebration to celebrate my new clothes. And the swindlers, just so that they could turn the knife just a little further, said, you need not wear anything but the clothes that we give you. And the herald for the emperor goes before the people, and he says, the only people that can see these new clothes are the people who are wise, the people who are sophisticated and unfoolish. And so the king comes out in his birthday suit. And everyone cheers and is telling the, the emperor how grand his clothes are and how amazing it is, but this one assuming little eight-year-old boy says to the emperor, where are your clothes? Everyone knows at that point what everyone already knew. 
See, this story of the emperor's new clothes, if you've ever heard it, is a story that describes a common tendency. We remain quiet while fallacies are being promoted to which everyone is subscribing. Why? Because we don't want to be thought a fool. Our world lives and fights in these PC kind of trenches. And yet there's a greater fallacy than the ones that you are likely thinking about right now in our world. And the fallacy, the greatest fallacy is this. My sin isn't really that big of a deal to God. My sin isn't really that big of a deal to God. How does that often come out? It often comes out and says, no, the person next to me is worse than I am. And if God is loving and God is kind, that it doesn't really matter. My sin doesn't really matter that much to him. Or how about this one for the Christians in the room? Well, God's grace is just sufficient for me. God's grace will cover my sin. And so I'm just going to keep heaping up grace. And when we do that, we minimize We minimize how great sin actually is in our lives. And today, we're going to be in a text where the Apostle Paul, like a little boy, pulls back the curtain on what's really going on and how grave sin really is. He's going to expose the naked truth behind the fallacy. See, we're not immune to being accountable to God and his standards. If you've been tracking with us, we took a week off last week, but if you've been tracking with us, we've been in the book of Romans, and this is our fourth week. What you've seen so far in the book of Romans is Paul just going down this dark road of how the self-reliant in chapter 1 are in sin, and they are separated from God. And then chapter 2, you see even the Jews who had the truth of God and who had the traditions of God and who were God's chosen people, they were guilty as well. So the self-reliant and the self-confident, the self-righteous are all guilty, as has been his message. And the darkness has been pretty dark, but it's going to get darker, be encouraged. It's going to get a little bit darker today before you see the ray of hope. Turn with me to Romans chapter 3. Romans 3, and we'll be in Verses 1 through 20, I think it's page 940 in the Bible on your chair, close to you. See, the darkness gets darker. And you're going to see in the first eight verses or nine verses, you're going to see Paul kind of in this classroom where he's answering objections from people who have a religious background who are saying, yeah, but I'm not guilty because of these things. And then he's going to move from the classroom, if you will, to the courtroom, and we're going to see the accusation that Paul makes, like the little boy to the emperor, to lay things bare, and then you're going to see the evidence that Paul lays out for his accusation, and then you're going to see the verdict. So walk with us. If you don't mind, we've been standing and sitting a little bit today, but don't mind, if you don't mind, let's stand. I want to stand for the reading of God's word. That's an historic thing that we do, or the church has done anyway. But think about a courtroom and think about what happens when the verdict is read. People stand. And as much as this is a verdict for the people that Paul is talking to, it is also a verdict, unfortunately for us. There's beauty in the end. There's a ray of hope that we're going to see at the end of this text that gives you more hope than you could ever imagine. So let me read it. Romans 3, 1 through 20. You can look up here or look along in the Bible that you have on your pew or the one you brought. 
Paul says this, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone be a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Verse 8. And why, why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Verse 9. What then? Are the Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, all, both Jews and Greeks are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That their throat is an open grave, and they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and that the whole world may be held accountable to God. There's the gap. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Would you be seated? First, I want to look at the classroom. Paul is speaking primarily to a Jewish audience. His Jewish audience, remember the church in Rome, is made up of both Gentiles and Jews. And he's primarily been speaking to them about how their heritage and how their traditions do not make them right before God. And he comes here in the first eight or nine verses, and he's primarily speaking to them. And here's the truth that I want you to see. The first truth I want you to see from this text. Our default position, especially our religious default position, is often to object, to object to the accusation of guilt before God. Paul asked these questions. You see all the questions in verses one through eight? He asked all those questions premeditatively because he knows how the Jews are going to respond to the gospel of grace, the good news that Christ, by his grace, not their works, saves and makes them right with God. He's anticipating those objections, and the truth is we often have some of the same objections to God and his grace. He knows his audience and their objections. And look at the questions that are asked. The first one is right there in verse 1. Look at it with me. What advantage has the Jew? Is there any advantage for the Jew? And he says what? He says absolutely there is advantage for the Jew. And the primary example he gives, and there are many more, is this in verse 2. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles. Do you see that word, oracles of God? That's the word we get for logos. Logos, this is the word. This is the scriptures. 
They've been given the scriptures. They've been given particularly the Old Testament scriptures, which reveals who God is and what he's like and how they were to approach him. When I think about advantages that people have in life, I often think about the advantage I had in high school. I, I grew up in a small town, and there were two high school science teachers. One was Miss Etheridge, and one was my dad. And I knew when I started high school that I was going to have my dad in a class at some point. And my dad taught the hard science classes like chemistry and biology. And when I was a sophomore in high school, I had my dad for biology, and then I had him for chemistry. You know, that in many ways, that was advanta- advan- there was an advantage in having him for that class. I remember going home when I'm trying to do homework, and I could lean over and say, hey, Dad, can you explain this to me? So I had his word. I could go to him and ask him questions about my homework, try to get some help with the test. He would not do that. I got no help. As a matter of fact, he treated me harder. But here's the deal. The one C I made in ninth grade was the first six weeks that I had, and it was in his class. Because I presumed that because my dad was a teacher that he was going to let me off. And he did not. I had a great advantage. I had him at home. I could ask him whatever question I wanted to ask him. But oftentimes in life, advantage does not mean advantageous. Oftentimes, we presume with the advantages that have been given to us. Oftentimes, advantage is not advantageous, and I had to learn that the hard way. You see, the Jews had the Word of God. They they knew who He was. They had the oracles of God that they might know Him, but in the end, was it advantageous for them, or did it produce just this arrogance about them? So that's question one, and what does Paul say? Much in every way, they had this advantage. And then you come down to verse three. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Remember in the Old Testament, God came to Abraham and promised him some things, land, seed, and blessing. They were the people of God. He specially chose them, but many of them, even in the Old Testament, were not faithful. They didn't trust God. They didn't sacrifice in the way God asked them to. They didn't have faith. And so while they may have been in the covenant community of God, they were far from God. And this is the question that the Jews would be asking. Aren't we just a part of the community of faith because we're Jews? And Paul is saying, look, even if every Jewish person turned away from God, God is still faithful. His faithfulness does not depend on us. You see that today, right? You see people looking at our witness as Christians and saying, and, and, and there's a sense in which this is important for our witness as Christians, right? But they look at our witness and say, I don't want any part of this God as, if that's the way people are. And there's an element of truth in that, but God is still God and he is still faithful even when we are New Testament faithless. He is still faithful. And so that's the second question you see him answering that they have. So there's advantage. There's question about God's unfaithfulness. And then you come to verse 5 through 8, and there's a lot of questions. If our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous? So they're having a problem with God being righteous. And then you come down and you kind of package this 
a little bit for you to help you understand it. And why not, verse 8, why not do evil that good may come? This is this idea of cheap grace, right? If God is a God of grace and we come to him by grace and he forgives us of our sin by grace, then we can just keep sinning and grace increases. You know, Paul's going to deal with this pretty in particular in chapter 6. And he says to these people who are saying that are cheapening the grace of God and saying, I don't have to obey because God's just going to continue to forgive me. It doesn't matter. And Paul says what? May it never be. May it never be. And then you come down to verse 9. Look at it there. What then, last question, are the Jews any better off? Do you see that question? Do you see, that's the last question. Look at the first question. Is there an advantage? Paul says there is an advantage. And then he comes down here in verse 9. He says, are the Jews better off? Certainly not. Does that sound like a contradiction to you? Here's why it's not. There was an advantage that they didn't take advantage of. But their condition was what? Look at verse 9. Their condition, just like anyone else, was that they were under sin. Look at the word there in verse 9. For we have already charged, that's an accusation. We've already charged that all, both Jews and Greek, are under sin. Do you notice the word sin is not sins, plural? Sin is a condition because of Adam and Eve that you and I have. It's a condition in which we sit. We call that original sin. And so the default position that we have is to object oftentimes to the accusation of guilt like these Jews before God. Can I ask you a question about the gospel of grace? What objections do you have to the gospel of grace? The good news of the gospel where Christ dies in your place. What objections to have do you have to the guilt in which God says that you are under because of sin? Do your objections look like any of these objections that the Jews had in their religious accomplishment? Another question I might ask to a room full of people who likely know Jesus, in what ways do you cheapen grace and the grace in which Christ has died on the cross. See, that's not a cheap grace. Grace is that comes at a high, high cost to Christ. And we freely benefit, rightfully so, from the scandal of grace. But do we cheapen grace in our lives? Do we ignore sin because we just know that God's going to forgive us? Is that our default position? You know, what happens when someone lovingly points out some chinks in our armor and maybe something that we've done wrong, the guilt in which we have, how do we respond to objection or guilt? Kids, how do you respond to your parents? How do you respond to one another? Spouses, how do you respond to one another? How do we respond to people who call things out in our lives? Do we object? I don't know about you, but I'm my own best defense lawyer. How about you? My first gut reaction is not, oh, thank you. I'm guilty. My first response is often, well, I didn't do that, or this is worse than what you just described, so I'm good. We need to be aware of the default position that we often have when sin is pointed out in our own lives.
Well, there's an accusation here, isn't there, in verses 1 through 9? A pretty big accusation. You're charged in verse 9. I'm charged in verse 9. But is there any evidence to back this accusation up? We want evidence, right, to back an accusation up. And this is what Paul does from verses 9 through 18. Look at verse 9 through 18. Let me give it, just package it a little bit for you. The first thing that Paul says is that we are under sin. And then if you just take really three areas from verses 11 through 18, he shows the evidence in our character. And then he shows the evidence in our conversations, in the way that we speak. And then he shows the evidence to our guilt in our path in the way that we conduct ourselves. And so what we see is our character is guilty, our conversation shows guilt, and our conduct shows guilt. Look at it with me. And you're going to see these words over and over, the words none or all or no. Look at it. None, and he's coming to a conclusion here from, from Romans 1, 18 on. This is his, the climax of his conclusion. None is righteous. None understands. So none is righteous, no, not one. That's the idea that we can make ourselves right with God, that we're not righteous, that we're not righteous. No one understands the implication of that is we don't see the full picture of truth in and of ourselves. We don't have the full picture of truth. And then he says, also none seek God. You know, we often talk about seekers and people who look like they are seeking God or in a place where they're seeking after God, can I tell you, when Paul says this here, what he's saying is, is that God has to seek us out first. If you see or you've experienced the conviction of God, think about even before you came to know Christ, was that you or was that God seeking you out first? And I think the Bible is really clear right here that it's God who seeks us out, that we aren't on our own, left to ourselves, seeking out God. So we're not seekers by nature. That's our character. And then summary, all, so none and all, all have turned aside, verse 12. Together they have become worthless. Now listen, I want to stop here because this is important. We're not as bad as we could be. I know this is a bleak picture. Aren't you so encouraged? We're not as bad as we could be. But as Paul says, we are as bad off as we could ever be without Christ and our sin. So we're not worthless in saying we can't do anything. There's a common grace that God gives. That's why your neighbor can be really morally, at least on the surface, morally good. You can take out your trash. You can care for people. So we're not saying that. We're made in the image of God, but we are saying that none seek God. No one understands. No one is righteous. No one is good before God. No, not one. And so he goes to character, and then he gives some evidence that anybody could see. And this is hard. Think about James 3 here. Their throat, all of our throats are open graves. Open graves if you ever, not that we've ever hopefully seen an open grave, but if imagine that for a minute. There would be a heavy stench. You wouldn't want to see an open grave, a decayed body, a stench. That's the way he's saying that our throats are what we say we use our tongues to deceive. That's what comes out of our mouth. And then the venom of asp is under the lips. Has anybody ever been bitten by an asp? Do you know what an asp is? You don't want to know. 
We had a little girl in our, the church I was at before. She was five years old. She was on the playground, and she got bitten by an asp. And she had to go to the hospital because of the venom of this little bitty asp on a tree. Watch out for asp. But that's the way our throats are. The venom of ass under the lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, deception. Not a pretty picture of our mouths. And then feet. So you've got character, you've got conversation, and now you've got conduct. Their feet. This is what we do. Verse 15, are swift to shed blood. So there's conflict and the paths are ruin and misery left to ourselves. And the way of peace we have not known. And what's the motivation here? No fear. There is no fear. There's no righteousness, there's no understanding, there's no seeking, there's no good, there's no fear. There's no fear of God before our eyes. So the evidence, second idea, so the evidence of our guilt before God is what? It's overwhelming. Theologians call this a pervasive corruption or total depravity or pervasive depravity. This is what we're talking about here. In Romans chapter 3, there's nothing that we can bring to God on our own that would make us right with him. We are not as bad as we could be, but we are as bad off as we could ever be. And here's what we often do with this truth. And here's why we often reject this truth. Because when we talk about it or sing about it, you're like, man, it's just going to make me a depressed Christian. Like, if I just think about how bad I am all the time, I mean, I don't leave a sermon or what I hear in worship in a way that encourages me, then I'm just going to be depressed. See, I don't think this truth at all is, is meant to depress you. As a matter of fact, I think what it's meant to do is, is humble us, not humiliate us. It's meant to humble us so that we understand the depth of our sin so that we can look up. You know the way that you change, according to 2 Corinthians, is to behold Christ, to see him. We could sing songs about man, and we can preach sermons, A plus B equals C. But the way in which God is going to get us to a place to be dependent upon him is to see our sin for what it is first. Yes, we are more than conquerors in Christ. Yes, we are saints. Yes, we are loved Deeply loved by Christ. But the first truth we have to get and we have to get well or we will be boastful people to go, I figured this out. I'm smart and look at my resume. So here's the truth. Depravity is not meant to make you depressed. It is meant to make you dependent. So we've seen an accusation of guilt. We've seen overwhelming evidence in this passage. This is a dark, dark place. And yet, we can see a predictable verdict, can't we? Look at verse 19 and 20. 19 and 20, for now we know whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and that the whole world may be held accountable underline those words, the whole world may be held accountable to God. You see, God is a just and loving judge, but the verdict here is what? It's guilty. And what's the response? Silence. You recall in the Bible, 
different people coming to God, trying to figure it out. There was silence with Job. There was silence with Habakkuk. There is silence in the end. Because God is a loving but just God. I'm going to talk about the accountability that we face, really primarily from God. One of the, one of the neat things about, I love being a pastor. I love the opportunity to shepherd people and care for people and teach God's word. There's some interesting things, like many professions, that happens when you're a pastor, though. Like when you go to the family dinner, uh, everybody looks to you and go, hey, you're a pastor. You got to pray over this deal. Or anybody in the family that wants to be married, you're the pastor to marry them. That gets really interesting sometimes. And it also gets really interesting when you're on a plane and you don't know somebody, or you're on the golf course and you're playing with somebody you don't know. And, you know, especially men, we don't, we don't really get there really quick about, hey, who are you? How many kids do you have? And like deep conversation quick. So it takes a little while to do that. So oftentimes what happens when I meet someone and we're getting to know one another, I know the, questions that, the, the question that is coming, what do you do? And oftentimes, there's a bit of time that's gone by that's built up to that question that might have interesting, colorful language or not, especially on the golf course. I don't know what it is about the golf course. I enjoy playing golf. I enjoy getting to know people on the golf course, but I think there are more curse words that are spoken on a golf course than any place anywhere. And so I get to like hole 14, and the guy's like, so what do you do? I'm a pastor. And you know what happens at that point? I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry I said this, this, and this. I'm such a good person. I really am. I'm a good person, pastor. And you know, I've had some interest. I mean, that's happened so many times. And I want to say some, uh, some things. I'm like, it's all right. There's a guy, actually, I'm going to go down a rabbit trail. There's a guy I know pretty well. I've gotten to know pretty well. He's a pretty sarcastic guy. We're playing in tournament golf. And we got to a hole, and he had a bad hole, and he's doing his thing with his, what's coming out of his mouth and breaking clubs and having a great day. And he turns over to me, and he's like, I'm sorry, Pastor. And I said something smirky because I knew him well enough to say it. I'm like, well, guys like you keep me, keep me in a job. <laughs> and apparently that story made it around to the other guys that I played with and because he thought it was interesting. But you know what I want to say? I want to say in those moments, I often don't say, I'm the last person you need to worry about. I'm the last person you need to worry about. I am accountable primarily, ultimately, to God. And you're primarily accountable to God. Listen, kids, things that you do, your parents may not know. God does. He sees you're accountable to him. Mom and dad, adults, accountable to God, ultimately. So all these things we try to do to, to be immune to the accountability of God don't work. See, our verdict, our guilty verdict before God is there, but here's the beauty. I've been, I've been trying to get to the last phrase in 20 verses for 30-something minutes because I don't want to leave you hanging in the dark. Look at the last part. What is the purpose of the law? When we, in the New Testament, when we see the law, we're all like, okay, that's Old Testament. I'm going to pass over that. Or it's just bad. Law is good. 
That's what Paul's saying. The law is good, and here's why it's good. It's good because it takes people, like in the emperor's story, and it paints a real picture. It reveals the knowledge of sin. Here's what that means. It shows us upfront and personal our need for a savior. The law can never give us. The law is like a mirror. It's a mirror so we can see the blemishes when we look at it. And so when you think about the Old Testament and them following the law, every day they were meant to come to the law and go, I don't measure up. Not to depress them, but to make them trust by faith in their God through sacrifice. And that's the beauty of Christ. That's the beauty of the law. It's a mirror, and that's the ray of hope in this text. And next week, you will see it full center. See, through the law comes knowledge. We need to know what's wrong with us. And what Paul has shown us in Romans 3 is this big black backdrop. But it shows us and it points us to our greatest need. You've heard the phrase, the night is darkness, darkest right before the dawn. And that's what Romans 3, 1 through 20 really is. It's the darkest moments before the dawn, which is verse 21 through 31. And I'm going to leave you hanging a little bit for next week. Because next week, we see the ray of hope that comes out of the darkness of our sin. The provision that God has given us. Sin is worse than we ever thought, if you read chapter 3 at all. But salvation through Jesus is more amazing than you could ever imagine. When I was in grad school, September 2001, got out of class, drove down and met my buddy Scotty Polk at Lyle's DeGrazier Jewelers. Been dating my then my then, uh, my, wife, my now wife, that's what I'm trying to say. It's killing me. Dating Melody, I'm going to find the engagement ring. And I get up in the World Trade Center in Dallas, and he shows me all these different rings, and he educates me about these rings. But I notice something. I notice at every ring or every diamond that he lays out, there's a black cloth underneath every one of those diamonds. Why black? Because the darkness of the black color brings out the beauty of the diamond. Romans 3, 1 through 20 is the black backdrop. Romans 3, 21 through 31 is the beauty of the diamond of Christ and the gospel, the good news that there is someone Praise God. There is someone who is righteous. It's not me. It's not you. There is someone who is good. And it's not me. And it's not you. There is someone who brings peace. The peace of God. Peace with God and the peace of God. And it's not you and it's not me. It's the person of Christ. J.C. Ryle 
says it this way. I think we have this quote. Christ is never valued until sin is clearly seen. We must know the depth and malignity of our disease in order to appreciate the great physician. The rest of the story comes next week. But here's your takeaway today. See your sin for what it is, but see your Jesus for what he's done. Amen? Let me pray. Father, it is not your purpose that we wallow in our sin and our sins. That is the evil one's attempt to discourage us, discredit us. But you desire us to see our sin, that we might see the beauty of your Savior, Jesus, who's died in our place, who has made us, can make us right with you, who is good and brings peace. So we thank you. We thank you for Jesus and who he is, and what he has done, we had no hope whatsoever. And Lord, I pray for one who is here today that perhaps they are relying on their own goodness, on their own self-righteousness, on what they bring to you, that they might have relationship with you. And I pray that you would show them from your word and by your spirit that that's not enough. That it took a savior, the God-man, to die in our place. That we could have new life that you grant freely to us. That we might live in the newness of life and have freedom from the bondage of sin and life in Christ. Thank you for the joy that that brings, even when we struggle. And so I pray for strugglers and sinners like me in this room that know that truth that still struggle pray that they would be encouraged that they could come to you in their weariness and labor for you will give them rest you restore them you will forgive them by your grace I love you Thank you for time to open the richness of your word today, empowered by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.